Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23, verses 33 through 43, which you will find in the New Testament section of our Pew Bibles on page 84 or on the screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Luke 23, verse 33. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Peter, for reading those scriptures for us. As I was preparing for today's remarks, I thought about a time in my life when I was pastoring the Presbyterian Church in Newcastle, Pennsylvania from around 2000, and 2000 to 2009. And uh, this scripture comes back very forcibly to me because this church for decades continues to have a Good Friday service, a three-hour Good Friday service for the whole community. And we would often ask the various pastors to come in, and they would speak on the seven last words of Jesus. And what you just read, you are hearing one of the seven last words of Jesus to the thief on the cross. Now... Here we are on the eve of Thanksgiving, and it sounds kind of jarring to our ears, doesn't it, to be hearing a a Good Friday text being read at Thanksgiving. Can we truly thank God for this? And you, you said it after Peter was through reading. You said, thanks be to God. The reason why this text is appropriate at all times especially on a day like today. Not only are we, as a culture, looking at the advent of Thanksgiving, but we, within the Christian community and the church around the world, we are also acknowledging that today is Christ the King Sunday, a day when we reaffirm, when we reaffirm our faith that Jesus is King on the cross 
He's king over the universe. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And the book of Philippians, chapter 2, the very end of the book, talks about a time that will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that reign of Christ is ongoing. And as, as Amanda correctly said, next Sunday then we will start the church year all over again by acknowledging Advent. 1707, that's actually 315 years ago. A young man that was often ostracized by the church. His name was Isaac Watts because he was taking the themes and the music of his generation and turning them into hymns. And the church was just upset that he was doing that. He would set scripture to familiar tunes. And here we are, 315 years later, we're still singing his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And I thought to myself, what would Luke want us to see today when we survey the wondrous cross on which the King of Glory died? What would he want us to see? He would want us to see the unequal scales of justice. Now again, what the people were seeing, what we're seeing today, it's very different. But what we would see as you read the text is that this is not right. This is not right. Look at what Pilate, after examining Jesus, said. You brought me this man as one who was perverting the people, and here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Find no fault in him. And yet, in our reading we just heard, it says they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, an innocent man being executed for crimes that he did not commit. That's what we're seeing today. When we survey the wondrous cross, what else do we see? We see the spiritual blindness of the people. They had eyes to see, clearly. But what did they see? When they looked at Jesus, they saw most likely a rabble-rouser, a disturber of the peace, a pretender, a fraud. And notice how Luke sets the scene for us. You have the crowds, and what were they doing? As crowds will often do, they were spectating, as we say. They were watching this bloody scene unfold. And then the religious leaders were there, and what did they do? They were scoffing. They were scoffing. Finally, this disturber of Israel is now being removed. What did the soldiers do? We're told that the soldiers were mocking. Just another day at the office. And then they started to gamble to see who would win the prisoners' meager rags. We're told that Jesus was crucified between two criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and the one of them started to deride him. He started to curse at him and mock him. 
Paul says to the church in Corinth, and I've always been moved by this verse, 1 Corinthians 2, 8, that none of the rulers of this age understood this. They didn't understand who Jesus was. For if they had, they would not have crucified the King of glory, the Lord of glory. They would not have crucified him. What else do we see as we survey the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? We see his mercy and his forgiveness. They were blind. They couldn't see. They didn't know what they were doing. And Jesus did something that many of us, including myself, would struggle to do. He prayed for his persecutors. He prayed that God would forgive the very people who were taking his life. And notice when he prayed, he prayed after they had crucified him. He prayed for the criminals on either side of him. He prayed for the crowds who were standing there, the soldiers who were gambling at the foot of the cross. I believe when he prayed, he was praying for Pilate. He was praying for Judas. He was praying for Caiaphas. He prayed that all who stood against him and mocked him would be forgiven. And we must remember that Jesus had options. He had options. He says, do you think and this is what he said in the garden before, as he was being arrested, before they took him to the cross. He said, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen in this way? Jesus could have called 12 legions of angels to destroy his enemies, but instead he humbled himself he prayed for their forgiveness. What else do we see? We also see a picture of repentance and assurance because one of the criminals on the cross was railing against him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But it wasn't a genuine cry of repentance, but the other criminal showed contrition, showed repentance. And he said, dear friend, said to his partner in crime, do you not fear God? And what a question to ask these days. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. Judas Caiaphas, Pilate, the soldiers, the crowd, the common criminal, none of them understood the travesty of what was unfolding, and they didn't see themselves as needing to repent and ask for forgiveness. But what else do we see? We see a picture of faith. And this repentant sinner then cries out to Jesus, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus on the cross, in the same condition as the criminal, but the criminal believed that he wasn't just a man on a cross. 
he believed that he was the king. Above his head, nailed to the beam above his head were the words, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. He believed that Jesus wasn't just a man. He was the Savior. And this, I think, as I read this, I thought this is a beautiful picture of the good news of the gospel. Because the beautiful thing about the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The message of the gospel is that we cannot save ourselves. One of the beautiful things about our, our process for membership is that I have the privilege of reminding folks year after year that the only requirement for membership, the only way in which one becomes a member of the body of Christ is by confessing faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This man was on the cross. He was dying. He couldn't save himself. He couldn't earn salvation by doing good works. He couldn't depend on his reputation or his position or the fact that his parents were members of a synagogue. He didn't say, Jesus, remember my good works. He didn't say, Jesus, remember my perfect attendance. This man was condemned to die. No hope. This is the good news of the gospel. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He had nothing to offer Christ. And that's usually how we must see ourselves as we come to Jesus. We're not that good. We have nothing to give to him. He gives us everything. And then you read the assurance. The assurance. Where Jesus says to this dying man, today you will be with me in paradise. As you stand at the foot of the cross this morning, where are you? What are you depending on? What are you trusting in? Who is your Lord and Savior? And I've asked myself the same question. If I were there, chances are I would be one of those characters. I would maybe be in the crowd standing there and watching. Maybe I'd be like the religious leaders, mocking and cursing. The hymn writer asks the question, were you there when they crucified our Lord? And I often say that my answer is yes. I was there. I was there. Because what took Jesus to the cross was people like me. My sin. And so before we can see and be thankful for what Jesus did for us as king on the cross, we must see the cross as being this gift, this work of Christ done on our behalf. Bernard of Clairvaux, you can tell I grew up around hymns, singing hymns. He asks this question, what thou, my Lord, has suffered was all for sinners gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve 
thy grace. Look on me with thy favor. And there is that old English word, vouchsafe, or grant to me thy grace. You put yourself at the scene, and it will be hard for you to say, oh, I would have never done that. Now, I realize when I became a pastor, ordained as a pastor in 1986, and here I am in 2022, that a lot has changed. When I would stand up on a Good Friday service or any day of the week and talk about Jesus in this way, people would immediately, for the most part, get on the same page and they would understand it and they would say amen. But friends, we are living in a different time where people will say that it's time for us to get over this blood and this gore. It's time for us to stop singing these songs to this bloodthirsty God, this ancient primitive celebration of God sending God's son to die on a cross. And the questions that many people are asking, if God is really a loving God, if God is really a merciful God, why doesn't God just forgive everyone? Why, why do we have to go through this, this liturgy, this story? Why did Jesus have to go through suffering into death? I mean, if God's really loving, and I've often reflected on this question in two ways. One is something that we all do. We know a lot of people in our lives. And there are a few people we know who are what I call, um, they don't bring any baggage with them. They're easy to love. You're around them. You just feel good all the time. They, they, they add to your life. They're almost perfect. They're, they almost walk on water. And these people are easy to love. It costs you nothing. But then for most of us, we have relationships with people, family members and friends who take a toll on us physically, emotionally. They say things about us. They are, they are persnickety. They are critical. They're negative. And you have to go on your knees every time and say, God, help me not to cut this person off. Help me to love them. And it costs you something. It costs you something because here's why. We know we want to live the ethic of love. And we don't want to just love the people who love us. We want to love even our enemies. And so if you are going to stay engaged and live in this world and deal with all kinds of people, you are going to suffer. You are going to give something of yourself in loving your enemies. Love can be costly. But the second way I think about it in answering that question, why Jesus then went to the cross, it's think about parenting. And even if you don't have children, this is what your parents most likely went through. The only way you are here, the only way our children are surviving, it's because parents, parents are humbling themselves. Parents are abandoning their own independence and they do it for over 20 years and you don't even want to know how much money you spent over those 20 years because you did it in love. Amen? Amen. You abandon your independence. You read to them. You feed them. You change their diapers. You, you take them to the hospital. You stay up all night with them. 
you sacrifice your time, you sacrifice your energy, and you do it because of love. Nobody's paying you to be a parent. You're willing to make all those sacrifices. And I remember the day when we took our daughter, Judine, to the hospital. She was about four years old for a surgery. And Judith and I were just weeping at the hospital. And we were saying, boy, I wish we could just take her place. Because we knew, and it wasn't anything major. It was sort of an ear thing they were going to do. But it was like, we thought it was the end of the world, our daughter getting surgery. And we just felt if we could just, if we could just take her place, And a lot of parents do that, throw themselves in the path of danger. That's love. And you say, well, why why did God have to do that? Well, John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him as a sacrifice for each and every one of us. Let me end, I'm totally running out of time here, but let me, let me just stop here and share another line from another great hymn that has meant so much to me. Isaac Watts again. The church of the 18th century didn't like him because of the way he wrote his songs and the tunes that he set them to. But here's one that we still sing. Where the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And like the repentant criminal, I invite you this morning to pray the criminal's prayer if you really believe that you're bankrupt spiritually, if you really believe that there is nothing you can do to earn paradise with Jesus, then pray the criminal's prayer. Lord, I'm guilty. You're innocent. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And if you sincerely believe that and your faith is in Jesus as king, the scripture says, today, you'll be with me in paradise. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and God's people say, Amen.